0: the world is set up for neurotypical people. And when someone who is neurodiverse tries to fit into that neurotypical world, that can create a lot of stresses and strains on them mentally that then manifest themselves in kind of broader mental health issues. And that's not to say that everyone who is neurodiverse has a mental health challenge as well, but there is a very strong correlation between the two.
1: Hi, my name is Nadia Nagamutu, business psychologist, coach, speaker, and founder of Avenir Consulting, which creates organizational growth and success via inclusion and diversity. We've been discussing the benefits that diversity brings to companies' bottom line performance for decades with more and more evidence. But there are so many questions organizations still have about how to achieve it. How do you create a culture where people feel valued for their uniqueness and the qualities they bring? I believe it's crucial to the future success and sustainability of every organisation that they find the answer to this question to make sure that each employee is not only supported but also appreciated. With this podcast, I aim to get some of the key challenges to creating inclusive workplaces out in the open and start uncovering the solutions to embracing a culture that cares for everyone. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most inspiring people in different countries and across industries who are pushing the boundaries on inclusion and diversity in the workplace from topics such as parenting in the workplace ethnicity age gender mental health and all things inclusion i want to create a movement to change society through sharing life experiences and creating more empathy and connection why care i believe that once we have organizations and societies that accept and value everyone for who they are, we become healthier, happier and better in our roles both inside and outside work. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Y Care podcast. My name is Nadia Nagamutu and I am your host. What are the underlying causes of the UK's declining mental health and how does organisational culture play a role in this? Why is it still challenging to talk about mental health and neurodiversity and how can we create the language to have open conversations about it? These questions and many more will be answered on today's podcast when I speak to my guest on the show, Sean Betts, Managing Director of Analect, part of the Omnicom Media Group. He has lived with depression and anxiety all his life, and in 2017 experienced burnout. Since then, he has been openly talking about his experiences. He has a mission to destigmatize mental health and neurodiversity, and in doing so, he founded Mind, a platform that brings together people's stories on all things mental health and neurodiversity. Together, we speak about the relationship between neurodiversity and mental health, barriers to organisations recruiting neurodivergent people, and the business case for creating a more inclusive and diverse workplace. I'm in full support of everything Sean is working on in this space. It seems a long, uphill journey towards destigmatisation, and his work is truly inspiring. Sean, it's an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you so much for joining me on the YCare podcast.
0: No problem. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: I just remember thinking when I first met you and, and heard your story, how refreshing it was to come across I mean, not just a man just talking openly about mental health issues personally, mental health issues that you've had, but also a senior person, someone who works for a global technology company in a very senior role, which is rare, I think. And I was curious if you might be able to tell us, like, how did you come to be on that path
0: It's a great question. I guess it's uh, reflective of the journey I've been on personally over the last kind of three or four years. So originally it stemmed from me having burnout from kind of heightened work related stress about three years ago. And I took a month off work. And when I came back into work, I kind of eased myself back in. But I kept hearing from lots of people that I knew around the business about how they'd been through kind of similar experiences themselves and all that did was just to make me a little bit frustrated that I didn't know that at the time and I didn't have someone to be able to talk to about it and someone who I thought would be able to empathize with me a little bit so I kind of promised myself very quickly after I came back from work that when I felt ready that I would start talking about my experience so lots of other people would know that I'd been through that experience that I was there um, to be able to know, talk to if people had similar challenges that they were facing, but also really to just start to try and make mental health issues a bit more of a topic for conversation across the business as well. That's really why I um, kind of came to that point,
1: really. It's so impactful hearing you talking about it. I'm intrigued as you were talking, you mentioned that suddenly after you returned to work, people started sharing with you. What do you think was going on there? Why weren't personal stories shared with you before? Why didn't people feel that they could before and then all of a sudden they were? So what was different, do you think?
0: There has historically been a lot of stigma around mental health. And I think when you hear of someone that has been through that kind of experience, if you have been through it yourself, that almost gives you permission to open up a little bit more because you know that you have got a friendly ear there. That can empathise with what you went through. And I think that part of me going through that and being quite open with everyone that I've been through that meant that anyone who had similar experiences then felt a lot more open and comfortable with talking to me about their experiences. And I think sometimes that's almost all it takes is a little spark or a catalyst and it can start to make everyone feel a little bit more comfortable about opening up a bit more and, and sharing their own experiences.
1: It's made me wonder exactly what you said. Everyone's experiences are very individual and are very unique. So when we talk or we label things like mental health issues, do you think that's too broad a title? There's so much that falls under that category, it seems.
0: Yes, there is. Mental health is such a broad church and there's so many different aspects to it. Uh, However, I, I think in a work setting, especially in the marketing and advertising industry that I work in, But a lot of mental health issues that people face are going to be related to stress. And the outcome of that is normally around depression and anxiety. They're by far and away the most broadly experienced mental health issues that people have. There is quite a bit of common ground, I think, there to be able to share stories and to look at how we can support people better.
1: Yeah. So what is it about the work environment and particularly you've got experience obviously in your industry that provokes that level of stress and therefore aspects like mental health issues around depression and anxiety yeah so I'll
0: start off with the work environment in general before touching on the kind of marketing and advertising industry more specifically in general over the last 10 20 years we've seen people working longer and longer hours in the UK. We've seen an increase in the amount of time that people are connected to work as well. When people started getting Blackberries, sorry, I'm kind of aging myself there, but Blackberries, (laughs) 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 like 10, 15 years ago, people were always connected to their emails and it meant that they had, or they felt an obligation to be available for work at, at any time. And now we're in a situation where People almost expect a response to an email within a couple of hours as opposed to what would have gone previously before BlackBerries were around and mobile phones were prevalent, where people would not necessarily expect to reply to an email for a couple of days. So I think that that adds a, a kind of level of stress that we just haven't had before. And, and with that as well is the globalization of, of work. A lot of industries are globalized now, which means that you have people working in different time zones. But not just that, working on different days as well. So over in Dubai, for example, people work on Sundays, but they don't work on Fridays. And yes. So when you're working with teams and other people in different parts of the world, they have a different definition of working hours to the one that you might have. And so everyone kind of ends up defaulting to kind of working all the time. I work for a big American Advertising group, Omnicom Media Group. And that means that a lot of the people that I deal with are in the US, which means that my afternoons and evenings can sometimes be a lot busier than my mornings, just because that's when they work up and, and they start their working day. So I think that those factors have really played into increased levels of kind of stress across all industries. I think, particularly in the part of the marketing and advertising sector that I work in, we're very much. In a client service model, we're a service business and with that comes expectations from clients, uh, rightly so, if you're working for them, that you are available when you need to be available. And there are some businesses that require different types of availability than others. Retail is an incredibly fast-paced and, and kind of regular cadence of work. You have to be available to be able to jump on short-term changes in strategy and, and to be able to address any issues that come up. And I think clients have taken more of a commercial approach to their marketing and pitches have become a lot more competitive and procurement-led. The requirements around the service have gone up as well. And that creates a lot of pressure on the teams and agencies to be able to deliver that. And there is certainly a spectrum of, of clients in terms of how demanding they are and how available they expect their agency to be. But I think just being in a service industry per se does add a, an extra layer of responsibility that you feel to those clients and your availability. The last point I'd make as well, which I think is often overlooked but is becoming increasingly important to talk about given what we're, we're currently going through with the coronavirus pandemic, is presenteeism. So I think presenteeism has put a lot of pressure on individuals historically where people have not wanted to be the first person out of the door at the end of the day and people wanted to be seen to be working harder and later so that they can get that pay rise get that promotion and kind of get up the ladder and it's been very much a kind of work hard ethic in order to progress in your career and the other side of that as well is that people have not felt empowered to be able to set their own boundaries When it comes to presenters and kind of hours of work. And I think that is starting to change quite a lot with everyone working from home at the moment, because we're obviously not present in the physical sense. We're all kind of working remotely. And I know a lot of people, myself included, that have kind of shifted their working hours and been very strict around them because they have got other commitments outside of work that they have got to attend to that are more important now, like childcare and their child's education. So, I think there are lots of changes happening at the moment for obvious reasons. And some of them, I'm hoping, will have a a positive impact on how we look at some of the challenges we've faced in the workplace over the last 10, 20 years when it comes to people's mental well-being.
1: You raised so many good points there. My mind was spinning as you were talking because I was like, oh, yes. And I really wanted to sort of build on what you were saying. And I think one of the things that I've noticed that's been an interesting distinction between how uh, different organizations and how they've responded to people being working remotely and using virtual platforms is some of these chief executives have been absolutely outstanding in some of their comms and messages that have gone out to people saying, look, you know, we recognize that you have other things going on, particularly if you're a parent, but other caring responsibilities, like if you've got elderly relatives or whatever it is that's going on for you during this very difficult time, acknowledging that and saying, we're not expecting you to be on nine to five. That's not the expectation anymore. Do what you need to do. Just such a strong message. And then on the flip side, I've heard stories which just make me feel really despondent about progress when companies are still trying to enforce and say, well, okay, so I get it that you've got parenting responsibilities, but specifically, when are you going to be available? Give us a specific time in the day when you're going to be able to do this and take calls and meet your deadlines and it's just a very, very different way. So almost trying to maintain the presenteeism, but virtually and just really being uncomfortable with not having that level of control. And I do think that those people who had a supportive organisation through lockdown, through the the pandemic, that we'll see a much healthier organisation as a result of it. I just think it's so short-sighted of organizations not to think about the impact on what's going on personally. They might not know the details. They might not know everything that's going on for their employees, but it's that level of understanding and listening and empathy that has a massive difference I think in how people have responded to their company, but also personally in terms of how they pop out of the lockdown and in terms of mental health and how they're feeling about it.
0: Absolutely. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there, that there are organisations that are still trying to apply their traditional management approach to how they work with people through lockdown that is very much based on presidities and control and not based in one of trust and outputs. And I hope that there will be so many examples of how a much more contemporary, flexible management approach has led to not just you know a lack of decrease in productivity but in some cases an increase in productivity for the workforce and that reinforces some of the studies and trials that have been happening globally even before the pandemic around things like four-day working weeks and I think we will gradually see a movement in society to much more flexible working Um, and I don't mean that in just in terms of a label that's placed on it and you know, shifting your hours by one way or another. I mean, truly flexible working where people can choose when and how they work as long as they are willing to commit to a certain level and quality of output, which is what it should all be about.
1: We've seen mental health issues on the rise over the last 10, 15, 20 years. It's unfortunately deteriorating as a society, our mental health. And I'm wondering to what extent we need to continue push. So I think mental health issues are much more prevalent in terms of talking about it, being more open about discussing mental health issues. We've had some amazing role models actually in the media talking about it, likes of Stephen Fry and Prince Harry. I don't think we can call him Prince Harry anymore, but anyway, you know who I'm talking about. (laughs) And people like you, your stories, personal sharing of what happened and what you went through and how you came out the other side and actually how you as an on an ongoing basis, manage it. So it feels like we've come a long way, but I'm curious, how far have we come and how far have we still to go in terms of organisations really getting this, offering the support that's necessary, making those reasonable adjustments? What do you think?
0: Yeah, we have come a long way, but I think we have got a a long way to go still. And that's because like a lot of other diversity and inclusion areas, the topics are very complex and you need to dive deep and really understand them better. So I think on the surface, it is amazing to see so many people talking about mental health issues now. It is fantastic that people feel comfortable to talk about their own issues and also, I think, find the language to have the conversations. One of the things that I think has really held us back as a society talking about this is that we just haven't had the words and the language to be able to express how we are dealing with our our mental health. And that is becoming a lot easier to do as you, you see more people talking about it and you pick up on the language and you understand how to apply it to your own context. But there is definitely more work to be done from a cultural point of view. I think it's very much a, a kind of mixed bag. You've got some organisations that have really lent into this and done some amazing work, and as you mentioned earlier on, there are certain businesses that aren't adapting and haven't embraced this. And so there is pockets of brilliance um, that is going on, and what we need to see is the whole kind of sea rising around that. The other issue is that we're talking about mental health, and we are in certain places, putting in much better support mechanisms for people that suffer from ill mental health. But the real challenge is starting to address the underlying causes. And that is a much harder thing to do because that exists at a societal level. That's not necessarily something that is restricted just to one country or another. It touches on what we were talking about earlier in terms of how you work and presenteeism and the general kind of stresses and strains of not just kind of working life, but everyday life as well. We are an ageing population. There is a lot more people who now have additional caring responsibilities beyond their children with elderly parents as well. Often those needs are exaggerated because we're much more geographically diverse than we used to be. So there's lots and lots of different challenges and underlying causes for people's mental health challenges that are just going to take a very long time to understand and address because they are these big societal problems that we don't have answers for at this point in time. And I think we need to be okay with that. The worst thing that could happen is that we start to beat ourselves up about not making enough progress. But... I think that no matter how much progress we make, even if it's only a little bit, that should be celebrated and we have to recognise that some aspects are much harder to tackle than others because they are more complicated. And that's fine. We should be comfortable in taking our time to be able to understand it better and to try and come up with different approaches for trying to fix it.
1: I completely agree. Everything you've said could be applied to any aspect of inclusion and diversity, though. I was just thinking that when you were talking. I was like, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But also when it comes to issues of race and racism and also issues of of gender and also issues of sexuality, we have to be comfortable about exploring it and not having the answer yet. And that it is deeply systemic and that all we can do is open up dialogues, be open to listening, hearing, understanding for example, for myself, I haven't experienced depression or anxiety in my life. Um, there's other things, obviously, in terms of that I have experienced, but I find it harder to understand or empathize directly without that personal lived experience, right? But we're not asking people to have the personal experience themselves, simply to be open to walk in someone else's shoes and understand and be open to learning. I suppose it's more about we're okay with that discomfort, that I don't understand you and i probably never will understand truly what you went through but i'm really open to learning and understanding how what i can do to support you as and when you might need it
0: yeah absolutely and i love that idea around getting comfortable being uncomfortable because a lot of the conversations that we should be having around all aspects of diversity and inclusion are going to be uncomfortable and we should be okay with that and Yes, there's a lot of listening that people need to do, a lot of learning that people need to do. My hope is that we take that further into action and that we feel more comfortable trying to do things, even if they fail, because I think it is only through action and by trying things that we're really going to learn as a society, how we can improve and, and take things forward.
1: Yes. The other area which we have to touch on, because you're also the founder of Mind UK alongside your MD roller analect so goodness knows um, and obviously a parent and all the other hats that you wear but i really want to talk about mind uk you say you're on a mission to destigmatize mental health and neurodiversity i'd really like to talk a little bit more with you about neurodiversity for those who are listening and may not understand fully the concept of neurodiversity and what it means can you just explain a little bit more
0: Absolutely. The definition of neurodiversity is actually relatively straightforward. It's really just embracing the idea that people whose brains are wired slightly differently is beneficial, as opposed to it being a disability, in inverted commas. And it's something that's been around for 20, 30 years now, and um, it captures a lot of different neurological aspects of people's ability to learn. So the most prevalent of those is dyslexia. A lot of people have dyslexia, whether it's diagnosed or not diagnosed. That's a whole nother story. It covers things like ADHD. It covers autism. It covers lots of other aspects like dyspraxia and other learning difficulties that people have. And the whole neurodiversity movement is really about putting a positive light on it and saying that there are tangible benefits to people having brains that are wired slightly differently and not to think of it as something that is a disability or holds those people back at all
1: hence the stigma so the stigma around neurodiversity is that those people aren't normal and what value can they add because they're thinking they're for example with ADHD that they can't focus as well as People who don't have ADHD, for example, and therefore that it's more challenging to work with them? I mean, what is it? You're trying to destigmatize it. So, what is the stigma around it? The
0: stigma is different for different people. It's similar to what we were talking about on the mental health side of things people's experience of something that is neurodiverse is a very personal experience. There's a saying in the autistic community, if you've met one autistic person, you've just met one autistic person. And I think the same can be applied to all the other things that fall under the neurodiversity umbrella, because it's a very personal lived experience. And The stigma really comes from a place of misunderstanding, I think. And I think that is true for mental health as it is for a lot of diversity and inclusion topics. Yes, right. Most people's kind of experience of neurodiversity is probably as a child at school, and they know that some of their classmates might be dyslexic and they get an extra 15 minutes in the exam. And that's probably about the kind of extent of their (laughs) knowledge for a lot of people. Or they might have someone that they know that's autistic and again autism is this beautifully wide spectrum that again is very individual and so one autistic person's experience and behaviors can be very different to another's so i think that stigma comes from that really and it's more often not the the outward appearance of those areas of neurodiversity that people have a grasp and a understanding on because it's what they experience themselves So there are stereotypical views of what an autistic person is. And they're actually based on male autism, not female autism, which is very, very different. And normally based around the idea of a young male child being obsessed with train timetables. Right. Rain man, right? Yeah, rain man, exactly. Or yeah, being incredibly good at maths. And there are these stereotypes that persist and that's where the kind of stigma comes from, and it's not necessarily saying that it's coming from a bad place. It just comes from a, a lack of understanding and knowledge.
1: Yeah, I think I just showed my age there. <laughs> <With> the <laughs> reference reference that's a classic. to a- it. <laughs> 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 so, tell me more about Mind UK because your mission is huge. How do you destigmatize that? Yeah, so
0: what we're trying to do is just to create a platform and a safe space for people to share their stories, because I think it is by sharing stories and making that personal connection with the experiences that people have that really start to address people's knowledge and understanding of the areas, and therefore start to break down the kind of stigma around it. So I set Mind up about 18 months ago, and the plan really was just to start sharing stories from people in general and their experiences around anything that had to do with mental health or or neurodiversity. And the reason why I wanted to focus on the two things was that my daughter diagnosed with autism a year or so before I started Mind. And I had spent a lot of time reading up about autism. And through that, I read up more about neurodiversity and started seeing more and more the links between neurodiversity and mental health. And the reason for that is predominantly that the world is set up for neurotypical people. And when someone who is neurodiverse tries to fit into that neurotypical world, that can create a lot of stresses and strains on them mentally that then manifest themselves in kind of broader mental health issues. And that's not to say that everyone who is neurodiverse has a mental health challenge as well, but there is a very strong correlation between the
1: two. That's not something I was aware of. So this is really interesting from an organisational perspective then. What we're saying is that mental health needs and individuals that are neurodivergent, they have very distinct needs. The support you offer to one or the reasonable adjustment you make for one is not going to work for anyone else. So that can make it hard for people and organisations to know how to adjust or adapt. And it seems to me that one of the things that we're really good at is just going, well, I'm really not sure how to do this. So let's just either avoid recruiting neurodivergent people, for example, into our organization. So we just avoid the issue altogether or ignore what makes them unique. So try and mainstream them and therefore not fully allow them to meet their potential. What are your recommendations to organizations and people, leaders, people who are listening? How do you overcome this
0: It's a really big challenge, I think, and it would be very easy for me to say that we just need to make sure that businesses can accommodate any individual's needs. But as a leader of a business, I know that that's not practical as well. (laughs) And actually, I think if we were purely having a conversation around workplace adjustments, I think we'd be in a very, very good place. The reality is that there is a severe challenge for people who are neurodiverse even getting through interviews and so not even getting an opportunity to be in the workplace and to therefore require any workplace adjustments. And that's purely because we have a very formulaic and one-dimensional approach to recruitment. There is normally a vetting process that happens around CVs that then goes to a short list who would be invited for an interview. That might be a telephone interview, it might be a video interview, it might be a, well, back in the day a face-to-face interview <laughs> and then that would be whittled down to a further shortlist and then there might be a piece of work or a presentation or some critical thinking that would need to be demonstrated so that you can then really start to understand one candidate versus another and make the decision and the challenges for a lot of people with neurodiversity is that that approach and certain hurdles that you have to get over as part of that approach are really really difficult. So someone with autism might find it really, really difficult making eye contact, for example. So a face-to-face meeting or a video interview is a little bit harder for them. So they're starting from further back in the process. They've got a, a challenge to overcome before they even kind of get to the interview. And they're often very capable, technical, skilled People who can bring a lot to an organisation. It's similar to certain disabilities as well. So I worked with a lady for a long time who has a son with Down syndrome. And we have tried bringing people with Down syndrome into the business. And we found that they're very good at administrative tasks. And they actually really enjoy it. And it gives them a lot of pleasure. Whereas administrative tasks for a kind of neurotypical person isn't always the most rewarding type of work to do. And so there there are lots of pockets, I think, of opportunity for us to think a lot more broadly about the types of people that we can bring in to really benefit different types of tasks and different areas of a business. What we've got to do is to find out a better way to recruit these people because the current typical recruitment process doesn't really work.
1: Yeah. So what would work? What are you saying organisations need to do in terms of, adapting their recruitment processes. So
0: there is no silver bullet because everything is slightly different so this is a hard hard challenge. One of the things we're doing and have been doing for the last year or so is working with a company called Auticon that works with autistic individuals and what they actually do is they do placements where they have a book of autistic individuals that they have kind of pre-interviewed and they know what their technical skills are And the type of work that they're they're good at and they will come and consult with you in order to be able to place that individual in the organization they also will do a lot of hand-holding not just for the individual but for the business as well to make sure that the right adjustments are made they regularly check in with both the consultant and the business that's hiring them to see how things are going and and really kind of monitor that whole experience from both sides with a, a very high duty of care now that as a model, I think, is very interesting. It's certainly a difficult model to scale because it is a very personalised approach with, a, as I said, a high duty of care. But it does start to shine a light on a different way of trying to recruit people into a business. So if we have got a way of being able to kind of objectively score and vet candidates based on their technical skills if you're recruiting into a technical role then that is probably be a better starting point than um, the current one which is very much focused around how someone comes across on a piece of paper and, and what their personality is like in an interview. I think the learning is we have to think about different lenses to look through recruitment as we're trying to think about how we can enable more neurodiverse people to come into the workplace
1: as i'm hearing you talk i'm thinking you know if i was a leader in an organization i think i get that it's the right thing to do but that sounds like an awful lot of hard work to me why spend the extra money for example working with a spoke agency who have a pool of autistic people and have all of that in terms of being coached internally probably extra money to coach the individual when they're in and onboard them. What is the
0: business case? No, it's a great question. The business case is actually a very positive one. There are lots of examples, case studies and research that has been done around the increase that you can get in terms of productivity when you start to employ people with a much broader, diverse background. And that's specific to autism, as an example, and autistic people who have got technical skills are able to be a lot more productive because they are very focused and very single-minded about the tasks they are doing in general, which is a lot more productive. The example I shared earlier in terms of the Down syndrome person within the workplace, you know, they actively enjoyed the administrative tasks. So you've got a, a very satisfied employee, whereas before you might have had a neurotypical person doing that role and they weren't fulfilled. They weren't satisfied in doing that role. And the other thing is that this is going to be hard work to start off with, without a doubt, because we're doing things for the first time, or we're doing things at a smaller scale. And until we have got a lot of learnings under our belt, we've got a better way of managing it and better processes in place. It is going to be harder work. But long term, when you think about it, there are economies of scale. There are processes and experiences that will get better over time. And having people with different brains in an organisation is going to lead to a much higher amount of creativity, a lot more innovation, a lot more original thinking and ideas, and just bringing a different perspective to the table. And I don't think that that's anything that a business in a competitive market can really shy away from at the moment.
1: I completely agree. And I think that those organisations that are forward-thinking enough to take the time and put the resource in, because let's face it, I think we're asking organisations to do a lot these days. And I can get why leaders might feel a bit overwhelmed. We're monitoring the gender pay gap and soon the ethnicity pay gap. There's lots of conversations about how to access a different talent pool, even from a gender perspective. And now we're saying on top of that race, on top of that sexuality, on top of that disability, and on top of that, also, neurodiversity. And all of them come with specialist recruitment agencies. I get how it can be overwhelming, but those organizations that take the time, I believe, will reap the rewards in the longer term. From what you were saying, from an innovation perspective, from a commitment perspective, in terms of their engagement of their employees, and in terms of financially as well. But I get how in the short term, it's less appealing with everything else that organizations have to deal with and think about i get why some are, are reluctant to have those sorts of conversations
0: absolutely i think sadly it is that short termist thinking that prevents more of this from happening for anyone who works in a publicly listed organization they will be very aware of the quarterly financial process and the reporting of numbers to the city that dictates a share price which is what an organization is really there to drive and We need to start thinking about all of these challenges much more long term, not just in years, but potentially even decades for some of this to really make a difference. And when you are in an organization where there is an average lifespan of a CEO of, say, five years and they're focused on the quarterly numbers, you can totally understand why that leader might not necessarily want to take on some of the more challenging aspects of the role that aren't going to pay off in the short term. But if we're to move forward as a culture and society, those are exactly the kind of challenges that we all need to be leaning into.
1: Yes. And we'll actually make that leader and that organisation distinct, right? That's what we're saying. And make them sustainable for the future. Any last words of advice to organisations in terms of if you were to pinpoint one thing even that they could work on in the area of mental health, neurodiversity, either or both, what would it be?
0: From a neurodiversity perspective, it's definitely around recruitment, as I've talked about. I think that is the big challenge. You've got to make sure that your door is open to people with brains that are wired differently. And I think that is that is a big challenge. From a mental health point of view, I still think for most organisations, we're in a place where people want to feel safe sharing their own personal experience. And it's very easy for an organisation to say that they are open to people sharing that. It's relatively easy for an organisation to give the right training to line managers so that they can handle the conversations that they might have with their teams around any mental health challenges. But I don't think you can underestimate the power of leaders standing up and talking about their own experiences to really give people permission and make them feel comfortable about talking about it themselves. And that, I think, is one of the most important things that um, organisational leaders can do at the moment. And whether that is mental health or, or something else, I think bringing your own personal experiences to your leadership role is really, really important because it makes you a much more authentic leader. It allows people to relate to you a lot more. I think brings the humanity into work that I think has been missing from a lot of corporate organisations for such a long time.
1: You said so beautifully and I couldn't agree more, Sean. We've, believe it or not, come to the end of our conversation, which I I don't know where the time's gone. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. It's been a real pleasure.
1: So for those people who are interested and might want to get hold of you, where can they find you on social media or other channels?
0: Yeah. Best place to get hold of me is probably on LinkedIn. My LinkedIn profile is just linkedin.com slash Sean Betts. That's S-E-A-N-B-E-W-T-S. Or you can drop me a note through the Mind website, which is d.co.uk.
1: Amazing. So the link to everything that Sean and I spoke about today is going to be available in the usual place. That's avenirconsultingservices.com under podcasts. And we'll put all the links to everything Sean's mentioned in there. Sean, thank you once again for speaking to me and sharing your story and sharing all of your knowledge around mental health and neurodiversity. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for having
1: me. That concludes episode nine of the Y Care podcast. I really hope you enjoyed our conversation and have learned something new about mental health and neurodiversity. I think Sean is spot on about the current organizational barriers to supporting, valuing and including people with mental health issues and those who are neurodivergent. Do let Sean and I know what you thought of today's podcast show. You can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter with the handle at Nadia Nagamutu. As always, I appreciate your support of this podcast through leaving a review on whatever platform you're listening on and spreading the word by sharing it with your friends and family. Huge thanks to Mauro Kenji for editing his podcast and to Christiane Gross for supporting with the show notes.